Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. Today is my third in my Writers on Resilience series. My guest is Julie Lithcott-Hames, a former corporate lawyer and Stanford dean who holds a BA from Stanford, a JD from Harvard, and an MFA in writing from California College of the Arts. Her first book was New York Times bestseller, How to Raise an Adult, an anti-helicopter parenting manifesto. Her TED Talk on the subject has more than 5 million views, and she shares her thoughts on parenting on CBS This Morning. She has a third related book coming out in April, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. I discovered Julie through her critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, which was my top nonfiction read for 2021. The book illustrates her experience as a Black and biracial person in white spaces. This interview with Julie is timely for the first day of Black History Month, which was founded by another famed Black educator and groundbreaking historian, Carter G. Woodson. It began as a week instead of a month, and we have colleges and universities to thank for extending it to a month in the 1960s. Woodson was the son of former slaves and the second African-American to earn a doctorate from Harvard. Every year, Black History Month has a theme, and this year the theme is the Black family, representation, identity, and diversity, and we'll explore the African diaspora. What better day to launch this interview with Julie Lithcott-Hames than the first day of Black History Month? Julie, who descended from immigrants and an African who is enslaved, wrote, My great-great-great-great-grandmother Sylvie was a slave in Charleston, South Carolina. She bore three children by her master, Joshua Eden, by which, I mean, he raped her. There is no consent in slavery. I come from people who survived what America did to them. Ain't I a real American? Julie goes on, when the amorphous mob harumphs about the needs and rights of real Americans, they don't picture me, people like me. But is anyone more American than those of us formed by America in an angry war with herself? I'm so American, it hurts. I'm hoping folks who are the majority, who are white, who inhabit identities that are not othered, I'm hoping they feel compassion, she said. I'm hoping my story invites them in and makes them want to know a little bit more. I'm hoping that anyone who reads it will be willing to be more compassionate towards someone who lives a different life experience. I have no doubt that after you hear my interview with Julie, you will want to rush out and read her books. I posted photos and further details about Julie on my website, including links to purchase her books. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, let's meet Julie Lithcott-Hames. Hello, Julie. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. Marie, I'm honored to be here. When I looked at the lineup of all the people you've had on, I just thought, wow, how, how did I get so lucky? Oh, thank you so much. It's really been giving me life during this pandemic. I started a podcast after getting interviewed for a couple of podcasts, and it's just been really inspiring for me to hear people's stories. You're the third writer on resilience. 
so excited when you accepted my invitation. So I discovered you when my husband and I took a weekend getaway just days before the pandemic. I gave him a list of audiobooks to choose from, and he chose Real American, and partly because he is British and I am American, like your parents. So I loved that book. I gave several copies to my friends and family for Christmas, and it was my top nonfiction read for the year. So thank you for writing such a deeply vulnerable and authentic memoir. Well, Marie, thank you. I'm, I love that y'all listened to it as part of your getaway and that you resonated so, so personally with it. And, you know, you just, I remember when you reached out to me for this, it was on, I presume Instagram, if I recall correctly, and you had some beautiful imagery about the books you were choosing um, as your favorites. And I'm just, I feel really lucky uh, to have uh, crossed uh, your radar and, and really excited for this conversation. So let's go. Okay, wonderful. So let's start by talking about your life and Real American. You describe it as a journey from self-loathing to love. Can you start out by telling us about your childhood? Yeah, I guess I want to start by telling you what I look like and who I'm from. Is that all right? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I'm black and biracial, pretty light-skinned. It's funny. When I finally began to love my black self, I've never felt lighter-skinned than I do right now. It was like I was the blackest thing in my childhood, which was an all-white environment. And now that I'm inhabiting diverse spaces and loving myself as a black person, I just look at my skin and think, my goodness, Julie, you are so light. White mother from Britain, as you've mentioned, black father, African-American. And I grew up mostly in white spaces. My father was a physician, fairly prominent in his field. His field was public health, which is, of course, something we all have on our minds today. He helped eradicate a different plague, something called smallpox. Back in the 1960s, he was doing this work. And so uh, when he left that behind, we just moved from opportunity to opportunity for my dad in academic health. And then he was in the uh, Carter administration in the late 70s. And we just kept following my dad's professional opportunities from New York to Wisconsin to Northern Virginia, back to Wisconsin. And as a result, I was raised in predominantly white places, at times exclusively white, with the exception of us. And that turned out to really harm me, harmed my ability or impeded my ability to develop a healthy sense of self. I spent many decades trying to really come to terms with that and undo it. And you were the youngest of several half-siblings, is that correct? Yeah, my dad had four from his first marriage. My mom had one. I was the only one in the household growing up. Everybody was that much older than me, that it was just me, my mom, and dad except for holidays and graduations and family events. It was just the three of us. The one question that my mom will want me to ask you, of course, (laughs) is because she's one of the people I gave the book to. (laughs) Did you ever know William Fagey? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Bill Fagey. Bill Fagey. And my father were close friends. Oh, really? part of the smallpox effort together. Oh, yes. Uh, And Bill Fagey, of course, is still very much alive. And... Uh I've heard him on the radio recently around COVID. Uh, My father passed away in 1995. And so it's been years since I heard my father utter the name Bill Fagey, but he used to utter his name quite a lot, so much so that it's a name that just is embedded in my my mind, you know, with respect and reverence and all of that. How do y'all know Bill Fagey? Yeah, so his sister is one of my close friends. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Annette Sticksrude is her name. And actually, I've interviewed for her for my podcast. You should go listen to it. Yeah. She's also followed his path into public health. She's a nurse and an educator, and she lives here. She goes to my church, and she's amazing. So, yeah. So, I've never met Bill Fagey, but I've heard his name. And we all went to PLU, Pacific Lutheran. So, he's uh-huh. one of 
PLU's famous oh, wow. alums, you wow. know, so. Wow. Yeah. And small world. Yeah, I know. Well, she's <laughs> going to love to hear this. <laughs> That's so wonderful. Okay. So going back to your book, uh, one of the things that struck me was how much you kept inside through your childhood, all those microaggressions and racist acts, like your friend who asked, what are you? Your best friend in high school fawned over God of the Wind and told you she thought of you as normal, not black, and then having your birthday poster on your locker to face with the n-word and then also getting insulted when you had academic achievements like getting into stanford so you must have felt deeply lonely and i know that you lived in predominantly white spaces did you have anyone that you could discuss these experiences with or did you keep it all inside until you got older i think what i need to say is i didn't know then how lonely i was know then how alienated I was from this place of self-love. I thought everything was fine. I thought I was doing fine. You know, it's kind of like you ask a fish, how's the water? And the fish says, what water? You know, I didn't uh-huh. know we, that what I was experiencing was a thing called a microaggression. We didn't have that language then. I knew that racism was the Ku Klux Klan burning a cross on your lawn, something I saw in my childhood on television and that I would start to see again more recently, but the smaller things, the things we think of as the mean things or the bullying or the ignorance or the slights, they all were so momentary, so fleeting. I spent a lot of time saying, did that happen? Did Mm. I, did it happen the way I think it happened? Is it a thing? You know, shouldn't I give them the benefit of the doubt? And when I did speak up or just raise an eyebrow or try to draw attention to it, the people around me were saying, oh, don't, it's not a big deal. Or he does that to everyone or whatever. So I was really clear that my experience either wasn't happening to me or wasn't happening the way that I was perceiving it. It wasn't what I was perceiving it or that it didn't matter. That that was the feedback I got from my peers and from my teachers and from the media. I never outright tried to draw attention to it as an issue. I never marched into the school office and said, this has happened. You need to do something about this. I didn't have that agency. I didn't have that sense of the, that I had the right to press these things further. And I didn't ever tell my parents who probably would have been compassionate. On the other hand, my dad had survived the Jim Crow South. He was born in 1918. Okay. Just mm-hmm. let that sink in for a moment. 1918, my father's born. He grows up outside of Tulsa right after the the Greenwood riots happened, the white supremacy siege of this prosperous Black community. You know, my father endured so much. And here I was, a child who had arrived in the world right before Martin Luther King was killed in a post-civil rights movement environment where things were so much better or seemed to be. So to some extent, I think I, I was appreciative of the fact that whatever small slights and insults were coming my way, I was not having police dogs sicked on me. Uh. I was not being taunted with the N-word as I walked into school every day. I was not being prevented from riding in buses, you know? So I knew that my experience was easier than that of the Black folks who had come before me. So in some ways I was tempering my own, you know, I was telling myself it's not that big of a deal. So I felt like in a lot of ways, this book was like a love letter to your parents and their stories. And as you mentioned, their marriage was considered illegal in 17 states when they got married. 
And both of them had such incredible childhood and family stories. So it's an incredible legacy for them. So let's talk about your dad, who you adored. He was highly successful in his career, but he made the hard decision to raise your family in mostly white circles. What do you wish had been different in your growing up years? Well, like I said, daddy was born in 1918. And I want to say that, you know, he was a black man in America trying to make his way unimpeded by racism. And, you know, it was quite unlikely for a person in his time who was black to be a physician, yet he was his own father, black father was a physician. So, you know, I come from these people who really broke a number of glass ceilings. And daddy had lived in West Africa, where he helped eradicate smallpox with Bill Fagey for seven years, where he was just treated as a smart, thoughtful, hardworking person. That is, he was respected. The color of his skin was not an issue. It wasn't an impediment. And he just soared in that environment and then came back to the U.S. and was, I think, as my mother would put it, was just determined not to to have his wings clipped. Mm. And so he chose to move us to these various communities, usually outside a major academic campus or big city. He wanted the house with the lawn that he could (laughs) grow, you know, with the lawn, with the big riding mower and You know, he had grown up in the country and there was a bit of country still very much in him. He wanted horses. And so what I wish was different, to answer your question, um, now that I've given you that sort of caveat about my dad and the why behind his choices, I wish that my father, who was really a brilliant pediatrician, who was known for being able to diagnose a child while it was still in its mother's arms, he didn't seem to know much about psychology. He didn't seem to know much about the psychosocial, the sociocultural development of a biracial child or a Black child growing up in white spaces. So, you know, it's hard for any child, whether you're of color or queer or gender non-binary or your religion does not match that of the people around you or you're poorer than everybody else around you. It's hard for any child to be the only one in a category. And the more visible your category is, the more alienating it can be. So I wish my parents had taken into account that maybe I needed to grow up in communities where there were other people of color so that I would have mentors and peers who could reassure me, you'll get through this, who could say, yeah, that sucks. And it happened to me. And here's how I got through it. That was missing. And I think that harmed me. So you describe your mom as the blackest white lady you knew, or maybe even the blackest person. <laughs> so she tried so hard to raise you in black culture, even though you lived among mostly whites, and she didn't know how to help you with your hair. And then at the end of the book, you talk about sharing with your mom how that affected you. That must have felt cathartic for you after all that time. But what's your relationship with her like right now? Well, let me cut to the chase and tell you, Marie, that my fourth book is going to be a mother-daughter memoir co-written with my mother. Uh, She's going to write a chapter, I'm going to write a chapter, and so on and so forth, marching through the pages of this book. That is to say, she is very much a part of my life. We actually co-own a home together, my husband, my mother, and I, here in Palo Alto, California, in Silicon Valley, a very expensive place to live. We did that in order to get our kids to the best public schools, quote-unquote best public schools, caveat, caveat, but that was a choice we made 20 years ago. And I've let you know that my father died in 95. He was 20 years older than my mother, so he died at age 77. She's now close to 82. And very much alive and kicking and smart and fierce and boisterous and wonderful. 
And when I came to terms with this childhood, and I'm here to say my parents raised me in a very loving family. I was loved and supported. I was given opportunity. All of that is true. And my childhood was devoid of any cultural richness with respect to Blackness and left me alienated from the Black community and really from my own self. And I lament that. And when I finally came to terms with all of this in my 40s, I'm now 53, my father was long gone. My black parent was long gone. I only had my surviving parent, my white mother, to really interrogate or (laughs) confront, which I did. And I think there's one scene in the book toward the end where I do that. I really, really, finally, it all comes out. And my mother, to her credit, just looked at me with her eyes brimming with tears and said, basically, I, I never meant to make it harder. I was doing the best I could. And I know she was. Because this was a young woman originally from England who fled a bad situation in England at age 22 and came to West Africa to teach without a shred of prejudice in her body and was really healed and helped and held tightly by Ghanaians. And she was dismayed by the colonialist perspective and the racism that was just so evident in many of the British and Americans she met. And yet she just fiercely loved the folks she met who were native to Ghana and really felt embraced by them and then became bewildered when she and my dad married and then they moved to the U.S. She encountered American racism for the first time Mm. when she was about 30. And she came with this dark skin tanned by living so close to the equator for seven years. And she had her husband, my dark skin father, and she gave birth to me and she put posters on my early childhood bedroom walls of black women with big afros. This would have been the early 1970s now. And she read books by Entisaki Shange and Nikki Giovanni. And she read me those things. And she was doing her and gave me black dolls. She was doing her best. She knew what she was supposed to do or what one was supposed to do. And all of that was good. It just would have been so much more helpful for my psychological development had we lived in a place that had more black and brown people than just us. She sounds like an amazing person. I'm so glad that she lives near you. <laughs> yeah. We all live in a home. We're on the same uh, property. She's in an attached cottage, like a hundred yards or 50 yards from where I am right now. Wow. Uh, not even 50 yards. It makes my house sound like it's a football field. So I think <laughs> she's like 20 yards from me. And we're writing a book together because we finally reconciled all the, all the stuff. Can't wait to read that. That sounds wonderful. So I had to chuckle that you ended up dating a Mormon boy. <laughs> So, um, and you said in your book, I started dating Mark five years after God changes his mind about black people. So why why the Mormons? And and let me just say five years after God changed God's mind. God's, but thank you. Yeah, not Mark's mind. Um, But yeah, Mark was, was open to me regardless of what his God felt. But yeah, why? Well, first of all, I'm in a high school in Middleton, Wisconsin, which is west of Madison. It is 1,200 kids. A lot are from farming backgrounds and have been in school together since kindergarten. Some have parents who are working in Madison in a professional role of some kind, but they were entirely white. There were maybe two Jewish families, no other people of color. Okay. And so I'm an adolescent. I want love and 
I feel lust and tenderness and desire and, you know, longing like any adolescent does, like any human does. So I'm queer, I identify as queer now at the time I was straight. So I'm looking at all these boys, you know, I'm going for the cute ones <laughs> and the, <laughs> the ones I like, just like anybody would. And they were all, all of them were white. And this particular young man, Mark, was gorgeous and athletic. And not only was he Mormon, he was a Republican and I was a Democrat. <laughs> but we would have these fierce battles. We would, we were both smart and knew it. And we would argue with each other, which frankly was very sexy. And anyway, <laughs> so um, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say on this podcast. Go but for it. Go no, for it. No, yeah. I mean, just check myself before I, right. Yeah. I loved him. And I can also see that my parents' alarm that I would be dating somebody who was the member of a religion that had excluded Black men from being priests only five years earlier, that just alarmed them, and rightly so. And I think, in part, I was beginning my long rebellion against my family. I was the youngest, as you've said. I had a lot of half-siblings. I was often cast as the good one, the smart one. I mean, everyone in my family is smart and everyone in my family is good in some ways and, and complex in others. We're all complex, but I was, you know, the kind of straight A student who'd never did anything wrong. And that was kind of the role I played in my family. I would not have chosen that role. It was a role that was put upon me. And I think my parents' outrage that I was dating this person just pushed me even more into his arms. Um, <laughs> And I would go on to convert to the church in college. And that's because, you know, Mormonism isn't a religion you just do for an hour or two on Sundays. It's a lifestyle. And if you're a devout Mormon, you marry other Mormons. I knew that I could not be with this person for life and beyond if I wasn't a member of his religion. So I wasn't religious. My family had baptized me Presbyterian when I was tiny but we did not attend church regularly. I had gone to Catholic churches with my friends and, you know, Methodist churches with my friends. And here was a Mormon. What did I care? It didn't matter. And I mean, I, I didn't, I wasn't rejecting any homegrown religion. And I think I ultimately converted in college to rebel against my family. <laughs> I think I was fairly certain that this young man and I did not necessarily have a future, or if we did, I think my, my mother had said to me, my mother who tried so hard to create this black childhood for me said at some point when I was dating this young man said, you'll convert to that church over my dead body. <laughs> and I'm here, Marie, to tell any parent listening, don't ever issue an ultimatum like that. Yes. To a child like me, because I was like, okay, I'll see you there. You know, <laughs> And don't tell me what to do, in other words. And if yeah. it's going to matter so much to you that I not be with this person, I'm going to be with this person. And, you know, if that is an adolescence in a nutshell, I don't know what is. It's interesting because tomorrow I'm interviewing a woman who basically fell into the Mormon church because she had an abusive home. And then she realized after she had four kids that she was actually queer. So oh. she put herself into conversion treatment and is now very happily out and queer. But, you know, it's oh. just interesting. I mean, the Mormon church really engenders a sense of belonging that I think is a draw for people, right? Yes. I mean, let's, that's, really great to to hear you say and I really appreciate your pressing on that point. Here's what I found. I lived in a house with my parents. It was a big house and there was a lot of empty space and a lot of quiet. I mean, my parents are both very outgoing loud people as am I, but there wasn't a lot of hubbub in my house. Mark in contrast was the second oldest child of 8 and they lived in a house that was the size of mine or smaller. 
And so there were people everywhere, which I loved. Meals were boisterous. There was always something going on, somebody talking about something. And I just, you know, they didn't reject me. My family rejected Mark in that he wasn't welcome over at our house. He was rarely at our house, but I was welcome at his. And so, you know, maybe that's who they were as as a family. Maybe that's also the religion about just be welcoming and open in the hopes of proselytizing. I don't know. But the fact was, I felt welcome. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that. Interesting. So when you got to Stanford, you were able to find more people that looked like you, even though you didn't feel black enough. It's interesting that you ended up at Stanford rather than a more diverse university. Have you reflected on that? Why Stanford? What makes you say that Stanford isn't diverse? I was thinking of like an HCBU or... Right. Definitely. There were definitely places that were more diverse than Stanford. Coming out of an all-white childhood, I didn't really consider an HBCU at Historical Mm -hmm. Black College University. I think I knew by that point, like, I'm barely Black. All I know about Blackness is what I've seen on the Cosby show and all the negative stereotypes about us I read in the news and see on the news. I think that would, at the time, have felt like a leap that was just too big for me to make. Stanford, however, at the time was about 25% students of color. It's now over 50% students of color. So there was a healthy percentage of black kids. I want to say 8% of the student body maybe at the time was black, 6%, something like that, you know, hundreds of people, which was infinitely more than the number of black people in my upbringing. So it was a very diverse environment. And I had hoped that I was going to find a sense of connection and belonging and quickly felt that, wow, these black kids all have something in common that I lack. And it is painfully evident by looking at my hair and my skin and how I speak and what I seem to know about in terms of what matters in the world. I just didn't feel that I really knew. I I didn't seem to have stuff in common with the black kids. That's how I felt at the time. I can tell you now, looking back on it, that I felt, oh my gosh, they know I have a white mother. They know I grew up in white places. I have this voice that sounds very, very white. I'm not going to fit in here is probably the look of worry that I wore on my face as I approached any black person. (laughs) They probably were looking at me like, what's up with her? (laughs) Um, So in some ways I Uh self-exiled. I excluded myself from the opportunity to belong in the first black community that I met, which was the black community of undergraduates at Stanford. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you said that you learned that Blackness was less about skin color or hair or language and more about lived conscious committedness to issues that impact Black people. That was really interesting. Yeah, Hmm. it's just my assumption, I guess, about I didn't know the diversity of Stanford's. So let's talk a little bit about your husband. So your dad told you that white boys will be your friend, but they'll never date you. Well, now after you talk about your Mormon experience, maybe I understand a little bit more about why you ended up with doing exactly what your dad did, really marrying a white person, right? You're very honest in the book about, you know, that you feel like you married a white man as a route to belonging in America. It's very deeply honest. And I love the fact that your husband is strong enough to love you in spite of your ambiguity. Also that he was the primary caregiver in your family when your children were young. That's what my husband did as well. Aren't we fortunate? <laughs> Marie. So fortunate. <laughs> uh, I thank the Lord and the universe and all the molecules that create this human existence and for every day for my partner, Dan Lithcott Haynes. He and yes. I started dating when he was 19 and I was 20. We've actually just hit our 33rd anniversary of being together. And he said to me six months into dating, we were on a drive home. We were driving back to the East Coast. Both of our parents live back East. I had met him at Stanford. This is June after we've just been dating since January. It's 1988. 
and we're driving across country together and I'm driving. He's in the passenger seat. You know, we've switched every four or five hours and he goes, somehow we get to this point in our conversation. He says, you know, I think if I ever have kids one day, I want to be home with them. Oh, and I, unlike you, (laughs) I get mad at him. (laughs) Why? Because if you listen to his pronouns, he said, if I ever have kids one day, I think oh, I will meet them. And I was like, why can't you say we? Okay. And then this turned into this huge fight. And I'm like driving down the road at 70 miles an hour and arguing with this boy. And finally he goes, I, after an hour of this probably, or who knows, he goes, you know what? I think I've just been afraid to admit to myself that this could potentially last forever. Oh, well, we end up at a hotel and we have wonderful (laughs) makeup um, activity. And what I realized then was I had this person in my life who was saying as a 19 year old male, kids matter to me. His own father was a very busy, successful guy who was hardly ever home. His parents got divorced. He really didn't, you know, spend much time with his dad for all kinds of reasons that were normal and traditional back in the 70s and 80s. And he was basically saying, that's not the life I want for myself or for, you know, my children, if I have them, if we have them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so he's uh, he's a pretty special dude, Dan Lifcott-Hames. Yeah, and being strong enough in their manhood to be able to say, I'm going to be the one who's going to take care of the kids. I mean, that's really rare. So how have you always been both hyphenated or is that? Yes, we knew this came from me out of my biracial experience, having a white parent and a black parent. You read those stories in my book, Marie, you see that many of the microaggressions entail people not believing that my mother is my mother Mm. or people questioning my connection to my mother. And so we haven't yet said Dan is a white guy. Maybe you did say that Dan is white and Jewish. And I knew from by this point, having seen enough mixed race families that you never know what kids are going to look like. They can end up looking like kind of halfway split between each parent. They can resemble one parent completely, the other parent completely. They can be darker than both parents. They can be lighter than both parents. You know, you never know. I thought given that and given racism and prejudice, I don't want somebody ever to have cause to say my child is not mine or my child, our children are not his. And I thought if we had a hyphenated name, that would help. Uh, so we put together this, you know, this, I was Lifcott, he was Hames, and we have been Lifcott Hames since August of 1992. And our children are the only two other Lifcott Hameses on the planet. Oh, so cool. My husband and I have been together for 33 years as well. So we met around the same time as you and Dan did. But we, in our case, we kept our names when we got married. And then 13 years into our marriage, on his 40th birthday, my husband said to me, I think we should hyphenate our names. And I thought, oh, my God, what a mouthful. <laughs> my first comment because you know being all the alliteration we were both english majors but you know, that's not where you want the alliteration in a name right right right, <laughs> so, right. which are you i'm the ghetto ghetto okay yeah we had had our oldest son by then but we we gave him both names but we didn't get him a hyphen so we actually had to go to court to change yeah. all of our names and to get his hyphen. And I was yeah. pregnant with our second child. So the younger two automatically got that name. But they're, I mean, they don't really complain about it too much. I've told them, you know, you don't need to keep these names when you get married. You can do whatever you want, you know, it's up to you. It's <laughs> so common now. But back when we were contemplating it, people would say things like, are you sure a man can have a hyphenated name? And <laughs> yeah, we've come a long way. 
It's ridiculous. So ridiculous. Yeah. You were making a point earlier that I just want to underscore before you move on, which is when you first introduced the concept of my life partner, Dan, you said he was so forgiving or so able to deal with the, the various ambiguities that I have felt about marrying a white person and the inevitability of, of my being with a white person, white man in order to kind of make it in society. I tell you what, the way that I think about it is, first of all, I adore this man. And like I said, he's the best thing that's ever happened to me. But in the book, I'm pointing out, like, look, I grew up in white spaces. I was trained to please the white gaze, to please white people, to perform for them. Of course, I was going to end up with a white person. I mean, if I I had waited to settle down until I'd become this self-loving person, I might have ended up with a person of color. My, My life is certainly very full of people of color now and has been for some time. And so the inevitability of Dan being white, of my partner being white, was really a function of when when I fell in that deep love that turned into a marriage. But Dan is so non-judgmental, secure in who he is, and trusting. He just stands with me and nods and smiles when I experience the various things I'm experiencing. He is my home base. He is my safe cave. He is my rock. I mean, he's just the most eternal thing that I have in this very mortal life. Oh, that's so wonderful. Well, I love the way that you tell the story about how he complimented you for your curls. Yeah. And, you know, after you'd had such ambivalence about your hair for years. And he white- was a- Teasing me for my hair. Yes. 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 I love he that. With wet hair. We were dating. We've been dating. We lived in the same dorm. We've been dating for three or four months. I came out of the girl's bathroom having showered and he came around the corner and I didn't have any makeup on. I'm in my robe going back to my dorm room and he goes, your hair. And I go, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in this protective mode. Like, oh, shit, my boyfriend has seen because I was pressing my hair straight uh, for listeners who may not understand that, you know, curly, coily, biracial hair in which I was taught to loathe and be ashamed of. And I just straightened it with a hairdryer and a curling iron and no one ever saw it curly. And so here it comes around the corner and he sees my head and he says, you have curly hair. And I say, yeah. And he goes, I love it. And I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, I guess that turned out to be a really important moment. Definitely. Fast forwarding ahead a little bit to when you started working at Stanford after passing the law career, uh, which was really interesting as well. It's interesting. I was reflecting last night that you're actually the second Black Ivy League educated lawyer on my podcast. (laughs) Wow. I know. Isn't that interesting? Who's the other one? Barack Obama? No, her name's Ami Sietta Clark. And I just actually, it's my podcast episode for this week. She was a Liberian refugee. Oh, wow. And really interesting story, but she went to Columbia Law. So, yeah. So I I find it so interesting to see these themes in my podcast, the people who come together so randomly. But thinking about your jobs at Stanford, you continue to experience a lot of microaggressions, like a colleague touching your hair, being told you were too emotional and aggressive and inarticulate. And then there was the PTA murder mystery party when one parent arrived in blackface and no one said anything. And you asked the question, is this how white people act when we're not around? Holding my shit together is is a victory as America works me over. I mean, now you're in a different space in your life. You're a writer full time. Do you feel like you're much more free being in this space and not actually being employed by an institution? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I want to just clarify that the PTA incident has nothing to do with Stanford. So I was- No, you're right. You're right. 
Actually, I think I was even gone from Stanford by then. I think that was 2013, if I recall. Anyway, whatever. I, it had nothing to do with my workplace, but uh, was very much the town of Palo Alto for sure. Yes, I have been what I call a free agent since 2012. My career so far have been four years as a lawyer, 94 to 98, 14 years as a Stanford administrator, 98 to 2012, and now eight plus years as a writer and speaker. And I call myself a free agent. And that means I am not beholden to another person's brand. I'm not beholden to someone else's mission statement. I am my own boss and my own employee and my own team. I work with others. I'm not the only person on my team, but I don't have to worry that when I open my mouth, I'm going to be offending somebody else's or harming somebody else's plans or vision or rules. I am me. And I am free to be me. And it is so liberating. And it's terrifying. I don't have a boss. I don't have a board of trustees. I don't have a set of colleagues. It's on me. I got to go hunt it down and kill it in order for me to be able to eat it in terms of my professional life. And frankly, Marie, I like that. I like living on this edge of what I call terrifying and exhilarating. One foot in the wrong direction, my career might fall off a cliff and yeah, I've got to rebuild. And I like that. I think it keeps me humble, sharp, and tenacious. You know, I am constantly hustling. I'm hustling for the next speaking opportunity. I'm hustling to write the next book. I'm hustling to figure out how I can be more effective at doing what I'm trying to do, which is trying to help humans on their path. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm really digging this kind of being my own boss thing. I wish I had benefits. And my husband has, after a few years of being a full-time artist, because my work as an author and speaker was supporting us, which was amazing. The pandemic hit and we didn't have benefits through an employer to start with. And now my income was really suffering. And he went back and got a more traditional job that came with a salary and benefits, which has been a very stabilizing influence as I shore up this less traditional, but really quite rewarding professional life that I've got going. Yeah, I can relate so much because I was in the corporate world for 30 years. And then I started my own company a year and a half ago. So I'm in the same boat as you. And I love not having a boss, but it's terrifying. (laughs) It's terrifying. Well, but let me ask you this, because I, and I know you're interviewing me, but I think your listeners want to hear more about you too. So here I go. Um, And you can, of course, edit this out. What do you think are the skills that are atrophying when you don't have a traditional working environment, when you don't have a boss and you don't have colleagues and you don't have people who are your direct reports? Because I'm noticing stuff about me that's atrophying. And I wonder if you're noticing any of that. That's a, a good question to reflect on. I think the thing that I miss the most is working with other team members. So you've been in this a lot longer. I know you have people that work with you on a more like, like Clarice or assistant, for example, but I don't have anybody like that yet because I'm still a newbie and I really want that because I really miss working with people. So I'm going to have to reflect on that one. What is atrophying? I feel like I've been learning so many different things, like how to do a podcast or how to do my own graphics. I got a new laptop and I'm still trying to figure out how to get my data from one laptop to another. And I miss my IT department, you know? Yes. But yes. yeah, I will think about that. That's a, a good question to think about. What what skills are atrophying for you? Well, they're the skills that 
one sharpens and practices when around other people. So I think my problem solving skills, that is problem solving in a human context, let's work on this problem together. I think those skills are atrophying. I think giving constructive feedback, how to speak up when I'm not happy with something or concerned about something and conflict resolution is another way to think about it. I find myself very impatient with people these days. <laughs> and I, I think part of that is the murder of George Floyd and yes. the pandemic and the rise of violent white supremacy. Uh-huh. But I think also it's, I'm out of practice. I don't have meetings with a group. I don't have committees that I'm on. I don't have to, you know, pay attention to the group dynamic and being in a group effectively is a skill. And I just am happy to say, I've noticed that my skills are not what they need to be. And I'm really continually thinking about that so that I can make some course corrections. Well, and I think I'm so involved in my community, like volunteering and things like that. I think I still have those skills. I'm not too worried about those. (laughs) I'll have to ask for feedback, though. (laughs) Maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) So so the title Real American seems more important this month than ever. You write about Trayvon being your Pearl Harbor. The line demarcating before and after you knew Blackness is a core chord in your life because you're raising a Black son. So the elephant in the room is the white nationalists that stormed the Capitol. They call themselves patriots. And people have been saying this is not what we are as America. But you can trace your ancestry back to Sylvie, the slave who worked on a plantation in Charleston, South Carolina. And you come from people who survived what America did to them. How are you feeling about what you wrote now in light of the recent events? I feel like I saw this coming at least 12 years ago when I was in my MFA program, getting a master's of fine arts in writing, trying to develop confidence that I could write books and develop my craft. I wrote poetry about the rise of white supremacy and white nationalism. I'm not sure I quite understand the difference, but I'll I'll use those terms interchangeably. So I was writing poetry and giving these poems out loud. I I was reading them out loud in public spaces in 2013. And I have been waiting for this because if you if you were paying attention if you're of color or jewish or another you know member of another community that's targeted by these people you haven't had the luxury of putting your head in the sand or pretending it isn't what it is and i've watched them you know according to news reports buy more guns join more hate groups (laughs) gather on social media i mean the evidence was there and I couldn't have foreseen Trump, but he is the manifestation of their imaginings and their fears. And uh, look, this is a set of people who feel disenfranchised, who feel this is a white country, was always meant to be a white country. They see their numbers diminishing. They see America getting more diverse. Many of us champion and celebrate that. They feel really desperately afraid. I think I can have some empathy for that, actually. I don't think the correct response to that is take up guns and kill people at all. And the biggest fear that I have is how embedded are they in our law enforcement? Local, state, and federal law enforcement is going to be called upon, as you've seen in Portland, to stand up and put their bodies on the line and keep things civil. And we're going to find out continually how many of those in law enforcement are actually embedded in the white supremacy community because they will continue to support the white supremacists instead of the rest of us. I feel that I'm more a real American than ever. I think we're all real Americans. So I guess by that, I mean, I don't feel in any way diminished by this. I feel sad. I feel emboldened. I feel I have to do my part to rescue our democracy from the clutches of these sort of willful lies and conspiracy theories. I mean, the fact, it's like, God, when did America, Americans stop being able to use their brains to digest information? 
this notion that we've stolen an election with every single court that looked at a case saying, nope, no evidence, nope, no evidence, nope, no evidence. Even conservative courts have said, sorry, Uh. no evidence. If you just look at the number of registered Democrats and registered Republicans in this country, you see that there are more registered Democrats. I mean, this has always been the Achilles heel of Democrats. Like, look, folks, if we just vote, we win. (laughs) We have more numbers, but we don't vote. We can be lazier and complacent about the vote. Mm -hmm. And this time around, Democrats were like, not any longer. And we came out in record number, as the Republicans did, but there are more of us, just period. That's just a known fact. And it's not that there are dead people on the rolls or that people are voting twice. There are simply more Democrats in this country. And that's a fact that so many people refuse to accept. If they did, it would help them make sense of what they see as a stolen election. It's dismaying where we are, but I definitely saw it coming. Well, the thing that really does not compute for me is that if we stole the election, that we would have, we wouldn't have had to fight as hard as we did in Georgia, you know, and we would have gotten the Senate, right? Right. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. Right. And they say (laughs) you stole the election from Trump. And yet, if you invalidate all the ballots that went for Biden or the extra ballots they think went for Biden, you'd have to invalidate all the downstream races on that same ballot, like the 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 ballots that went for Biden, but also reelected a Republican senator or a Republican congressperson. You can't have it both ways. You yeah. can't say the Biden part of the ballot was invalid, but the Republican parts of the ballot were of the ballot were valid. It's just it's ludicrous. Unfortunately, millions of people believe it and it's dismaying. I want to move on to your other books. But first of all, I wanted to just comment that I saw on your Facebook that you're a member of the Black Moms group in Palo Alto. And and I'm so glad that you found a community where you can be understood. Thank you. I appreciate yeah, it. That's yeah. great. I thought it was a lovely story that somebody came up to you and tapped you on the shoulder. Yeah, it was, you. Uh, yeah, it was 2016. It was election day 2016. Many of us thought this was going to be the Ugh. night we celebrated the election of our first female president. I was having about 45 or 50 people over and we were putting up television screens on the front porch and the back patio and in the living room. Anywhere you went in my house, you were going to be able to see the TV and hopefully have some nice food and drinks. So here I am r- filling my cart with hors d'oeuvre type food and drinks. I'm buying champagne. So I'm at the champagne area and this woman comes up to me and she says oh i see you're having a party are you and i said yeah she's like me too so exciting trying to do champagne math meaning how many bottles of champagne do i need for all these people and we were just two strangers two black women who were just delighted like little girls over what was about to happen with hillary clinton we thought and she then said do you live around here i said i do i live you know i told her where and She said, well, I live right over here and I I like to come up to every one of us I see. What she meant was there are hardly any Black people here. And, you know, I I try to reach out. And that connection has turned into a friendship and has turned into group activities and just a place of belonging uh, that feels where I really feel at ease. That's lovely. Well, that's the kind of thing that I don't know what Dan is like, but my husband is, he's the outgoing introvert, but he's not, and I'm the shy extrovert, but he doesn't go up to people and just start conversations. It's the kind of thing that women, I think, are more likely to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So I love that story. It's wonderful. So just moving ahead to to your first book, How to Be an Adult, can you tell us about what prompted you to write this book? In a nutshell, I was a dean at a university seeing a whole lot of people who could be old enough to be in the army, but yet were still micromanaged by their parents. 
And I thought, good Lord, what's to become of them? And what's to become of all of us if the next generation doesn't know how to hashtag adult? Yeah. How do you think that shift happened in the way that people parent? Well, I basically laid out in the intro to the book. I say there were four or five things happening in the mid-1980s that contributed to what we now call helicopter parenting. We really became quite fearful of strangers. Stranger danger as a concept was really took off in 1983. The play date was born in 1984. So children were no longer arranging their own play, playing with whomever and however they wanted. Now parents were managing play. Uh, the self-esteem movement took off in the early 80s, which was applaud kids at every turn, give them ribbons and trophies and certificates just for showing up rather than for being great. Seatbelts and bike helmet laws were going into effect, which made us safer in cars and on bicycles, but also led to this notion that we can, with technology and products, we can safeguard every element of our environment instead of preparing our kids to be smart and strong around dangers. And then we became really obsessed with changing schooling to teach to the test and lots of homework in response to some surveys that suggested that American kids weren't doing as well compared to their international counterparts. So across the mid-80s, childhood went from this very free, wide open, expansive time of life to one that was hovered over, watched, managed, handled, fixed by parents. And the first set of young people who came to college with parents who couldn't let go had been raised in the early 80s with that first set of play dates. So this problem has been with us for some time, but it really wasn't until the last 10 years or so that we began putting two and two together and seeing, wait a minute, we have so many young people struggling with anxiety and depression. Why is that? Well, they've done studies now that correlate this highly involved parenting style with anxiety and depression in kids. And the why behind that is when we're highly involved in a kid's life, when we're over-involved, doing too much of the planning and thinking and managing, problem-solving, coping for them, we're not giving them autonomy. And a person who lacks autonomy doesn't really develop a self, doesn't really develop a sense of, I know who I am, I know what I can do, I can handle this, I'm going to be all right. And that really is undermining of a person's wellness and leads to anxiety and depression. So that's the situation. That's why it's a big deal. And that's why I wanted to write a book about it. Yeah, it's such an important book. And when I look back on our parenting, so I have three sons. My oldest is 24, and he was born as a really early 24-weeker, one pound, six ounces. And then I have two other sons. One is 17 and one is 14. And I look back at my oldest, and I feel like we really coddled him too much because he was medically fragile, and and he also has ADD. And I think he needed us to be more involved because of the ADD. So we stayed on top of his grades in high school, and... He needed that. He graduated from college, but we kind of pushed him out the door. Like we helped him with the college, trying to figure out where to go. And whereas with our younger two, we've been completely hands off. And our second child is applying for colleges now. He's managing it completely on his own. He already has an IRA. You know, he's just wired differently. He's like 17 going on 35. So I know you talk a little bit about that in your book. Can you elaborate on that? How different kids sometimes need different types of guidance. Well, yeah, each kid is an individual, unique, wonderful, and all kids need food and shelter and love. But in terms of the more complex or nuanced things, we really do want to be paying attention to what does this kid seem to need in order to feel safe? What does this kid need in 
in order to be challenged. This realm of ADHD is really complicated. There's a lot of evidence that shows that when we do too much for our children when they're young, simple things like just tying their shoes too long instead of teaching them to do it and letting that process play out until they finally learn, that can lead to ADHD or ADD we're depriving them of developing an executive function because we're doing all the executive function thinking for them. You know, paradoxically, for kids who have ADHD, I mean, you, we have to ask ourselves, am I going to be this kid's executive function for the rest of their life? No. Why? Because it's not right. And because one day I'll be dead and gone. And my kid needs to learn this stuff, even though it's going to be harder for them. You know, it is never too late to start putting the reins back in the kids' hands. And if we don't, the longer we wait, the more harm can be done. So yeah, know each of your kids individually, intimately, uh, be intimately aware with who they are and what they need. I think, you know, I've got a kid with ADD and anxiety, but he was so smart. It seemed, I'm just sort of now speaking in generalizations. He seemed so smart and so high achieving. Those things really didn't seem to get in the way until college when they did. And my husband and I, Dan and I finally realized we have barely learned anything about these diagnoses of his. And we began to read up on these subjects. And he came home from school at the end of sophomore year, intending to take some time away, which he's now in the midst of. And he saw these books stacked on the counter and he said, mom, and he pointed to the books. And I thought he was just going to feel so angry or pathologized, like, don't read about me, you know, like, don't think you can just read up on what I am. And instead, he put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Mom, thanks for taking an interest in, in understanding, in understanding who I am, is what nice. he said. And it was really moving. So yeah, that was a lesson in, boy, I really have failed to see this kid for who he is and have overlooked some really big things. And I've let that be a lesson to slow down and try to see both of them as they are instead of the image I have of who they are or what I might want them to be and all of that. It's so hard when our kids become young adults. I've found that really <laughs> So my son is a, he's working at Whole Foods full time. And he just the other day applied for a job, like a promotion and didn't get it. So I feel like I'm constantly reassuring, trying to explain like, you know, a lot of people have to go through a lot of rejection. You know, I've been through that in my life. There's a, a limit to how much we can do. So yeah, so hard. That leads into my other question, which I saw that you wrote a really great newsletter article about helping our young adult offspring navigate COVID-19, which was really helpful. And one of the things that you talk about is how our young people are scared for the future. And I was just curious about what you tell your kids or other young people when they express their fears for the future. Because I feel like I stumble sometimes when my 14-year-old, who's really a worrier, is like, ask me about climate change and how do I, you know, how do I give him hope or how do I respond? And how do you deal with that? What I've read is that we're supposed to validate their fears mm -hmm. and not, not do the opposite, which would be to dismiss their fears or tell them it's not that big of a deal or anything like that. So we're supposed to empathize with the fear. Like, yeah, that sounds like it's really bothering you and it bothers me too. And I'm concerned. And then you switch to, you know, let's talk about what we can do about this. You know, you want to empower the person to sort of have some agency over next steps toward whatever the issue might be. So, you know, with what's going on, for example, in our country right now, a kid might just be, feel so helpless and you can say, well, what, what can we do to try to make a difference in this situation? And maybe, you know, you're in a community where there's, there's some protesting going on 
on COVID safe protesting, or maybe it's, I want to write a letter to my, some law enforcement officers I know are doing the right thing. And I want to thank them for their service. You know, there are concrete steps each one of us can take so that we feel less helpless against these really large global systemic existential threats. So that's the key. It's empathize and empower. Mm-hmm. And, and the older they are, the more real we can be. I mean, I, mine are 19 and 21 now, and I, don't feel too much of a need to sugarcoat anything. As I've already said, people this age, they could be in the army, but instead, you know, here they are, they're in college, they're in our home. And I want to invite them to be adult thinkers around this. I want to invite them to be in conversation with me about the fears we all have, but also about, you know, the fact that we're not helpless and that we can make choices that it further our values, meet our needs, make us feel like we're doing something. Yes, I like that approach. So can you tell us about your upcoming book that is going to be released in April 2021? Absolutely. My next book is called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And it's for 18 to 34 year olds struggling with adulting. This is a book where I'm sitting with the reader shoulder to shoulder over coffee, basically. It's that kind of narrative voice just really empathizing with where they are, if they're feeling stuck, if they're feeling not quite fully baked or not quite fully adult or reluctant or what have you. It's me saying, yeah, here I I get it. I, I'm here with you. I understand. Of course, it's terrifying. That's valid. And here's the deal. You gotta, it's your turn. So let me help you. I'm here with some thoughts. I'm here with a perspective of someone who's a lot older. I'm not an authority on this. Nobody is but I care and I'm here. So let's go. It kind of has that tone and flavor to it. Oh, I can't wait to buy it for my son. As soon as it's out, I'll be buying it. (laughs) Awesome. Good, good. Have you read or watched something recently that has inspired you? Yeah, so many things. I mean, I'm every time I read about resilient Black people, I'm inspired. I haven't yet read Cast, but of course it's on my list. There's a book coming out called The Three Mothers, and it's about the mothers of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin, Anna Malika Tubbs. And it's sort of these unsung heroines in our 20th century, uh, the mothers of these three men who would go on to do amazing things. It's sort of a love letter to mothers, a love letter to Black mothers, a love letter to Black women as being such a source of persistence and strength and resilience. And so it's coming out in February, I believe, The Three Mothers. I highly recommend that. I love it. And so then my final question is a question I ask on all my podcast interviews. Is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you throughout your life? You know, I think both my parents really, my mother came from the north of England, Yorkshire. Her grandfather was a coal miner. She was the first in her family to attend college. She persisted through a lot of really unfortunate, difficult, awful circumstances in life. And she just kept going. And I really admire that in her. And I admire that my father did the same. My father had atrocious things happen to him coming up as a black man in the Jim Crow South. And they both just kept going. And I think to the extent that I do that, I get that from them. And I'm grateful to them for it. Yeah, that story about your mom's first husband. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh, gosh. This has just been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your Absolutely. day. I would love to just, can I briefly share where people can stay connected with me? Or is Please that do. No, go ahead. Okay. If listeners want to stay connected, I love to connect with folks on social You can go to my website, julielifcotthames.com, no hyphen, julielifcotthames.com, and check me out there. And my social handles are all jlifcotthames, whether Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. I will see you there. And please do check out my forthcoming book, Your Turn, 
I'm super excited about it. It'll be in every format. I'll be narrating the audiobook. Going to be recording that very soon. If you're an audiobook person, you probably are since you're listening to a podcast. So hope you'll check out the book and consider getting it for any young adult in your life. I listened to Real American and then I read it again on Kindle. I read, I think, in the discussion guide on your website that you did something creative with fonts and margins. So I'm like, oh, get it. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Kindle version was deeply disappointing in that regard. But um, yes, yes. It's, it's a prose poetry book. So it's, I've asked the the lettering and the words and the format to serve the ultimate aims of the book, which is to create a lyrical and sonorous experience for readers as they stayed with me through a fairly difficult story. Oh, very creative. Well, I love the way that you're using all of the skills that you've developed throughout your life and are pouring that into your work as a writer and a speaker. Thanks, Marie. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Such a close reader. Yeah. Thank you so much, Julie. It's been a great conversation and I look forward to promoting everything that you do in the future. Thanks, Marie. Take care. <laughs> okay. Bye. bye. I feel so fortunate to have discovered Julie's work, and it was such an honor to have this important conversation with her. Don't forget, you can find photos of Julie, links to purchase her books, and other details on my website, www.fertilegroundcommunications.com. Look for the podcast tab. Do you know someone with a grit and resilience story who would be great to interview? You can find more info on my website. Next week, my fourth writer on resilience is Marianne Monson. Marianne has written 11 books for children and adults with an emphasis on frontier era women's history. I discovered her through her nonfiction title, Frontier Grit, in which she shares 12 true stories of incredible and diverse pioneer women from all backgrounds who changed the world of the American frontier. It's an intersectional collection of women who were tough, hardy, fearless, and groundbreaking. She followed that up with a companion nonfiction book, Women of the Blue and Gray, Civil War, Mothers, Medics, Soldiers, and Spies, and Her Quiet Revolution, a novel about Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, frontier doctor and first female state senator. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review if you like what you hear. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.